0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzera. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Today is the last of three parts uh, on six radical invitations from God for our politicized, polarized world. That is six radical invitations from God for our polarized, politicized world. The question is, what might be God be saying to us in the midst of this division in which we find ourselves where... The goal of political campaigns, for example, is actually to get us to demonize the other side. And so now we find ourselves with families divided and churches divided and neighbors divided. Some can't even speak to each other, uh, wrestling with how do I know what's true, et cetera. And so if you ask some people, you know, can you be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden and the Democrats, they would say, absolutely not. If you ask some other people, can you be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump and the Republicans, they would say, absolutely no. In fact, a few extremists on both sides would actually even be willing to take up uh some kind of arms or perhaps go violent to make their point known. And you know, I've no I now have heard Christians on both sides uh making the case that they are speaking for God and God has a clear uh candidate in the election. I remember in the mid 1980s Jerry and I were studying Spanish in Costa Rica and for vacation we went to nicaragua now understand nicaragua at that time was in the middle of a civil war between the contras and the sandinistas and uh yeah that wasn't one of my better marriage moments uh and uh so we got to managua the capital city and we went to church to uh, i think it was managua baptist church And we went to Sunday school class. And the discussion on the Sunday school class was on Exodus 14 and the liberation of the uh, Israelites from Egypt and God taking them through the Red Sea. And what was so fascinating about that Bible study was the point was being made by the teacher that Egypt was the United States, Uh, Reagan was Pharaoh, Ronald Reagan was the president at the time, he was Pharaoh, the Sandinistas were God's people being liberated from oppression, et cetera, et cetera. It was really quite a Bible study. Uh, And, you know, we knew multiple, many Nicaraguan families that were quite divided themselves had Contras and Sandinistas and, you know, in their very family itself. And uh, I remember studying liberation theology uh, in seminary and actually before that. And, uh, you know, you had clergy, at least in the 80s, 70s and 80s, taking up arms uh, to fight against dictatorships and death squads. And... uh, you know, quite a popular theology. And, and uh, you know, they're just seeing the oppression of the government and seeing that God's will would be to take up arms and fight against it. And so, you know, what do you what do? You do? And, and so even interesting, if you think about Rwanda and uh, 1994, the genocide that took place there where extremist Hutus killed 800,000 Tutsis. What's interesting is that so many were evangelicals. So many were Christians. But talk about shallow discipleship, uh, that's an understatement and, uh, you know, the carnage that followed. I think even of the of the uh, Kosovo uh, Wars and, and uh, 1988, 1999, the, the Serbians, you know, were, just consider that the Muslims in Kosovo were on sacred ground of the Serbian Orthodox Church and that whole genocide. And again, you, you've got this history, and that's just a little bit of history, of uh, polarization, politicization, and God being sucked into it all. And so here we are living today and our, you know, we're, how do I sort this out? Well, before I launch into my uh, you know, theme today, I, I just wanna mention the wisdom of Job. There really is some wisdom here of when Job finds himself in incalculable suffering uh, and his three friends show up. Uh, again, he's lost his children, he's lost his reputation, he's lost all of his wealth, he's lost his health and he's in great suffering and his three friends arrive and they sit in silence with Job for seven days. Because there is nothing to say and, and and it's silence. Uh and then you've got you know thirty-five chapters of lots of words, and then finally God speaks at the end of Job uh out of a whirlwind, and he silences Job. Now not as a, a rebe- not as a like a nasty punishment, but because he loves Job. Uh and but God speaks to him basically, you know, where were you when I created the you know foundations of the earth? And basically he silences, he calls them again to silence uh in the midst of this bewildering suffering that they cannot explain. No one can explain. But silence is actually a way of knowing. It's a it's a pathway to knowledge. It's it's to be present with the uh, limits of our own knowledge, the ambiguity of what's going on around us. But it, when we're silent before the Lord and still, uh, we get off our thrones of thinking we know what we're doing and our words of conceptualizing and figuring out this is what's happening. Of trying you know in the world and actually we're surrendering to him and so I, I want to invite you even as a a foundation more than ever the spiritual practice of silence is incredibly important uh, in days like today to be silent before the Lord and let me just again mention to you a great resource perhaps to get you started uh, a daily office resource that we make available free on our website go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash daily office and uh, it's a little little pamphlet you can download into your phone or on your computer and print it out to just help you begin to pause. Again, it's for morning, midday, and evening to get you to be silent before the Lord and then meditate on a little bit of Scripture. But something to get us more grounded in silence in the midst of some of the chaotic things going on around us. So let me take a few moments. Let me review the first four invitations that I believe God is offering to us uh, in our world today, and then let me try to bring this all together around uh, the final two invitations for us. So we began by saying the first invitation was from God, I believe, is that we surrender everything. We, we, we open up our hands. We don't control the future. The Lord Almighty has it. Uh, and just like Isaiah chapter 40 says, God says, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothings. And so, again, God's saying kingdoms come and go, nations come and go. And I trust that wherever you are from, what country you're from today, as you listen to this, you love your country and you pray for her and you work for the shalom of your country that it might flourish. But we recognize that every country will pass away. And yet we're filled with hope because as it says in uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other mm-hmm. words, there's a certainty that uh, the kingdoms of this world will pass away and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus will fill the earth. And so we surrender to whatever, to him and we abide in loving union with Jesus, regardless of what external events are happening to us. So, but we don't just surrender everything. We embrace our limits. And that's really talking about humility and uh you know, it's interesting, I, you notice even Paul's humility uh, in Philippians 3, after he's talking about, you know, pressing on toward the goal for which God's called us in Christ Jesus. And, and then he, he, he makes a statement, he goes, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And just a, a real expression of humility, here's Paul writing holy scripture, and, uh, but he's just humble. And, you know, if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. You get Philippians 3, 15, very fascinating, but we want to embrace our limits and be very humble as we engage in thoughts and opinions of what's going on around us. Then thirdly, we talked about third imitation is we master the way of contentment. We master the way of contentment. They're really coming out of, in particular, uh, Philippians 4, where Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content. In my in any and every situation, and uh, you know, tremendous you know thesis there, and and we, you know, we talked about it last week, and uh, and really it's an invitation to enter the life of our God, who's a God of peace. It's one of His names, and and enter into the peace of God. And it's something that Paul speaks about. He's mastered it through the ups and downs, and trials, and difficulties, and pains of life. He's actually learned it how to abide in Jesus through externals up and down. So so that's part of our task as followers of Jesus is uh, getting to God, learning to pray, give thanks, and allow him to teach us to master the way of contentment. Then fourthly, we talked about the fourth invitation was was remain faithful regardless of outcomes and that the church has a prophetic role. We haven't with any earthly government we're not a theocracy like ancient Israel. Uh, we have one Lord, one Messiah, and our first loyalty is to him. And he cannot never be reduced to a political party or a platform. And so our values are his, not the world's. And so we love people, all humans made in his image. And and so we care about, we're, we're faithful regardless of right-wing, left-wing political parties. For example, we care about the whole world. Um, Because God loves the world. People are made in his image. We care about the poor, the oppressed, anybody who's being dehumanized, Matthew 25. We care about the homeless, the disabled, orphans, widows, prisoners. Uh, We care about racial injustice. We care about the unborn. We care about the environment. Uh, We care about justice in any arena. We care about uh, sexism being eradicated. We care about children care about immigrants and refugees around the world. We care about the family and marriage and sexuality and its, you know, sacredness. We care about peace, you know, reconciliation. We care about those in authority over us. We pray for who's in authority over us. Whether it was it's Nero or Caligula, uh, we pray for people. We pray for those in authority. And so we're, we're just faithful to what God's given us to do regardless of circumstances. So let me now move into the final two invitations which I believe are from God and you can add to them, of course for us today uh in our polarized environment. So the fifth is this that we choose to love uh your enemies. You you choose to love your enemies. Now Jesus saw a religion in his day that was judgmental and arrogant and cold and indifferent and angry and condescending and, and so he he gives the uh, a core aspect of his kingdom, which is this. He says, you've heard love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collector is doing that. So if you love only those of your political persuasion or think like you do or read news that you read, what what good is that? Uh, Even the tax collectors, pagans do that. And so what makes a Christian distinct, what makes us unique in the world is we actually love those who are, we would consider, quote, our enemies. We actually, we pray for them. In fact, for Jesus, the degree to which we love our enemies is an indication of the measure of our spiritual maturity. And we're to pray for our, our, quote, enemies until we feel something of God's love for them, until God's heart becomes our heart, and that we we are we become, Jesus says, we reflect what it means to be a child of our Heavenly Father who loves his enemies. Now, again, political enemies, religious enemies, whatever it might be, uh, but we choose to love them so the question is, who is your enemy today? Who Who is that person who drives you crazy, who's closed-minded, you're avoiding, you don't want to be in their presence, they irritate you. Uh, and again, it, it, I know people have got enemies, the banks are the enemy, Wall Street's the enemy, the government's the enemy, the terrorists are the enemy, uh, you know, ISIS is the enemy, communists, socialists, capitalists, uh, maybe it's someone even in your own family. What's so interesting is Jesus takes us to, to a whole other level, he says, Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. And what's so interesting, Jesus says, when we, we murder people, not goes, that's really not the only issue here, physically murdering somebody, because we murder people with our words, with our attitude, with our contempt. And he says, even a glance toward a person, like you jerk, or, or giving people a silent treatment—that sarcasm, where we see people as objects, not actually as people. And uh, you know, he says, "You call someone a fool," which actually is like stupid, idiot. He says, "You're in danger of the fires of hell." He, he, he sees anger and dismissive, nasty words not simply as a weakness. Oh, oh, this—we say this is normal. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it's nothing compared to what other people are saying. For Jesus, it's an issue of final judgment. In other words, it, it, it's a hell-deserving crime. Uh, so therefore, saying words flippantly uh, for Jesus is a matter of life and death. That's why we the invitation from God for us is regardless of what's happening around us, we, we choose to love our enemy. In fact, nothing is more important than, again, learning not to despise people. And a synonym uh, for judging is despising uh, it's when we harden our hearts against someone. We, we decide a, a person's not even worth existing and we write them off. We, we condemn them, condemn them. You know, desert fathers are just, you know, the great um, men and women who fled to the desert in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. What's so fascinating is that they wrote not just about communion with God and, and in silence and solitude. They wrote a lot about communion with your neighbor and so Anthony, the great father of monasticism, wrote this, our life and death is with our neighbor. Our life and death, he wrote, is with our neighbor. In other words, the whole of the Christian life is in this refusal to despise or judge people, to be harsh with people. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, you know, we're not to make final judgments on anyone that belongs to God. You know, Do not judge lest you too be judged. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother or sisters. And because Jesus knows our, our tendency is to overestimate uh, the sins of others and underestimate our own. And But a spiritual person for Jesus hides the faults of other people, doesn't highlight them. And, and obviously, this comes out of our own uh, awareness of our own sinfulness. And uh, it's just so easy to expose other people's faults. One of the great writers of the Eastern Orthodox Church is John Climacus, and uh, he wrote this, and it's just so powerful. He goes, the failure of beginners in the Christian life uh, re- is mostly around greed. He goes, but as they make progress, the failures that come then are more around pride. They think more highly of themselves than, than they ought. But he goes, but for those who are nearing maturity or perfection, he says, those their failures come almost solely from judging their neighbors. In other words, that the older you get... It's easier to become more judgmental, not less. Uh, in fact, you can be so right, you're wrong, uh, because it's coming out of a heart that's hard. I mean, think of how easy it is if you have adult children, parents, you, know, you disagree with your children, the choices they're making, you end up just judging them and driving them away. And again, you disagree with someone politically and boom, you know, driving them away. So nothing is more important than loving our enemies, and because they're actually the way God changes us. Um, it's one of the ways God, one of the most important ways God pulls out of us uh, sin and self will. Um, you know, if people say to me, oh, maybe I don't like you, but at least I prayed this morning and read scripture. <laughs> no, I mean, to love your enemies is a miracle. Uh, that's why the Sermon on the Mount begins with Blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken, those are absolutely dependent on God, have nothing else. We mourn, we're meek. I mean, it's just. To, to, to love enemies, friends, that, that takes a miracle. That that takes God. All right, I, I'm going to have to come. This will be its own separate podcast later. It's so important. But let me move to our sixth and final and critically important invitation here from God, which is this. The invitation is to refuse to belittle other perspectives. It's to refuse to belittle other perspectives, Refuse to despise or put down other perspectives. Very difficult to do in our present environment. Now, the most important is a, there's a very important text that I encourage you on your own to, to read it through. And it comes out of Romans fourteen, and it's this very ch- unique situation they had going on in the uh, first century uh, in the Church of Rome. Because in the early Church, you had differences of opinion around people eating food sacrificed to idols, and they had differences of opinions around holy days. What was which day was more holy than the other? Sabbath, etc. And uh, because people saw the world differently, just like they do today. And so Paul wrote this uh, you know, tremendous uh, chapter, Romans 14. And, and here's what he, he said. Let me just make, maybe read it through some of the key verses here and make a couple of comments. And then I'll make some applications for us today. He goes, except those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and and vice versa. And he says this, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord's able to make them stand. So he makes the point is, you're not to make judgment on disputable matters about what a person can eat. Some people say, I I can eat only vegetables. Other people have had no problem eating food sacrificed to idols because that wasn't an issue for them. For many Gentiles, that was an issue. And then Paul writes, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Those coming out of a Jewish background considered certain days very holy. Gentiles that didn't have any history of holy days, every day was alike. And Paul just writes, everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. And right, he goes back, don't let us therefore stop passing judgment on one another. And then he writes, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. So if your brother or sister is distressed because of your political views, you're no longer acting in love. And, and Paul's saying, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. We all stand before God. Are, who, we're his servants. Um, and the kingdom of God's not a matter of who you vote for. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then he kind of closes by saying, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And I'll put it this way, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of short-term earthly political parties. Now, I imagine most of you listening to this, you've got a position about the election uh, here in the United States. Uh, Many of you listening are from other countries around the world, and you've got positions around different political parties uh, in your church, I'm imagining, as well. so let's acknowledge that. But we all come to the an issue to a political situation. We 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 come to a decision like who do I vote for? Um, we give different weight to different issues. And if you can imagine on a scale of zero to ten, uh, I'm going to weigh a particular issue uh, maybe a five, and you may weigh it a ten. And so you've got to take a number of issues uh, issues that we consider. Okay, these are perhaps biblical issues, but then how does each party represent them? And what's the weight I'm going to give to it as I make a decision? So for example, you might take an issue of racism uh, and human rights. Okay. What's the what's the weight you'll give to that a value of zero to 10? Let's take the unborn. Same thing on a, a scale of zero to 10. What's the value of that? Let's take the poor and the vulnerable, orphans and widows. How about the environment? The character of the leader, you know, the character of the different candidates. How important is that on a scale of zero to 10? How important is the impact on the rest of the world on a scale of zero to 10? How about immigrants and refugees? Uh, how about the family, marriage, you know, sexuality? How about global peace, military spending? Now, the list can go on and on, and you need to make your list. But what's important is you recognize people are going to give different weights to different issues based on their histories, based on their values, et cetera. I mean, I think of even, even if you're with a pacifist, for example, you know, and someone who doesn't believe ever in war. Now, it's one thing to be a pacifist when there is no fighting going on, but it's another thing to be a pacifist in the middle of a, for example, a world war. But a pacifist, much like a celibate, a celibate bears witness as a sign and wonder to the heaven, to skips the, you know, sacrament of marriage because of what's going to come when we'll all be in heaven and be married to him. So in a sense, they 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 are a sign and wonder. Well, a pacifist also is... Uh, bearing a witness, a sign of wonder that uh, in, in heaven there'll be no war, war, all war will cease. Uh, but can I have room for a pacifist to it? Those few people that bear witness and choose not to ever uh, take up arms or, or fight. And it's a very p- difficult position to take in the middle of war. But the point is, in Romans fourteen is I'm not going to belittle other perspectives. I'm actually going to be curious. I'm, I'm going to listen. So. I I refuse, I want to say this again, the imitation from God is I refuse to belittle other perspectives. I actually listen. I'm curious. I'm open. Uh, This takes great differentiation, great maturity, uh, because, listen, we come from different histories, different parts of the country, but I recognize without love, I've got nothing. So yes, I may, if we're, I may try to persuade you to my point of view. And I do it though with a with a heart, with an attitude, with a posture of not despising you, not belittling you for your perspective, um, but a real respect. And now, uh, even some of you listening may actually work uh, in uh, the political realm, uh, in in politics, and that's your vocation, uh, work wise. And and that's wonderful. We want followers of Jesus involved in all you know, invocations from, you know, theater to politics, to, again, all the arts, to again, medicine, to education, you name it, the list goes on. That's great. But we want to come to uh, our field with a sense of, again, we we surrender ourselves, uh, everything to the Lord. We surrender open hands before him. We, we embrace our limits of, of understanding and Moment in history, we we we're content. We've we we're walking in the contentment of Jesus because we're we're living in loving union with Him. We're we're faithful to Him. We're not just trying to win people's approval around us. we love our enemies, uh, and we don't belittle people uh, ever. I I I don't know if you you know this, uh, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in 1937 wrote a book in which uh, a theology around about turning from judging others to love and he wrote it in the middle of nazi germany you know na- nazism going on in germany uh now what's interesting if you try to imagine 1937 germany you had uh the church itself was split you had a confessing church that was underground you had the you know the state church and uh, yet you had nazis attending churches with different le- nazi party members with different levels of understanding and you think about fake news going on today there surely was fake news there uh, you know, Carl Bar- led by Karl Barth, there had been a Barman Declaration of, of that many had signed, including Bonhoeffer, about the you know our allegiance is to Jesus as the Word of God that transcends all political parties and states and countries, etc. And uh, but but Bonhoeffer writes this incredible book on turning away from judgment uh, to loving all people. And, and what's interesting is he later gets involved in an assassination of Hitler. Uh, To try to assassinate Hitler, gets caught and he gets. He's a pastor and he gets executed. And in fact, I'd recommend a book to you that it's an older book called "Repenting of Religion" by Greg Gregory Boyd. It's just it's a it's a it's a good distillation of Bonhoeffer's work. And basically goes like this: that the original sin of rebellion and our separation from God is related to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That the source of original sin was judgment that adam and eve wanted to j- make judgments like god between good and evil and so we placed ourselves in the position of god and divided the world between who and what we judge to be good and who are what we judge to be evil and so rather than our original purpose from god which was to participate and live in the love of the father son and holy spirit out of relationship with him we were to get our life from him and him alone he is our source Uh, Our original parents chose to get their life from making judgment. And the reason we can't judge is because we're not God. God alone is the judge uh, who knows the true hearts of all people. And our calling is to love people, not separate from them or ever see ourselves as above other people. And so instead, when we get our life from detecting good and evil, not that anything, you know, anything goes because there is appropriate times to confront and, you know, evil. that's a larger topic than I can go into right here. We are to get our worth and our source of life from God alone. And we are to love without judgment. That judgment belongs to God alone. Again, think of the wheat and the tares parable, Matthew 13. The problem is that the world in which we live in is everything around us is judgment. We are trained to live in judgment, to be judgmental, Uh, But every time we make judgments of other people, we belittle people, we are participating in the original rebellion of Genesis 3 that blocks the flow of God's love through us. For this reason, as Bonhoeffer writes, we must repent of religion, uh, that is, despising other people. Gosh, amazing you wrote that in 1937. Great insight. And again, back to Romans 14, that's why Paul writes, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Yeah we're to pray for our enemies uh, until God so changes our heart that we love them like God loves them. just like God loves all sinners, enemies of him. this this is the revolution of what it means to be a Jesus follower in his kingdom, how we treat those with whom we disagree. Uh, so again, just like the book of Job, uh, we can't even ju- we don't judge God either. Uh, and I think Job learned this at the end of the book of Job, and we don't want to be silent and still before the God, before the Lord. In these days, I'm taking more silence than probably ever uh, because of the days in which we're living in. And uh, I minimally have been taking 20 minutes a day uh, for years, many years now. Uh, and I've actually, incre- just, I just let it go until I, you know, I, I don't think in some ways we we go to silence, silence comes to us. I'm trying to be responsive in my own life. and So let me invite you again to pick up that resource, emotionallyhealthy.org dailyoffice daily office. Go to our website, check that out, download it, begin to carry it around. And perhaps a morning, midday, evening, let me invite you to just be still and silent before the Lord, for he is in his holy temple. And let's get grounded in a sense of silence before him. So here's the six radical invitations from God for you, uh, this I'm offering in this polarized, politicized world. And I pray you would just take them into your heart uh, because whether it's this election season in the United States, uh, that we, this is our posture as we move out into the world, regardless of what country in which we find ourselves today. We surrender everything, number one. Number two, we embrace our limits. Number three, we master the way of contentment. Number four, we remain faithful, regardless of the outcome. Number five, we choose to love our enemies. We ask God, we pray for them and ask God, again, in the process, be changing our hearts. And then sixthly, we refuse to belittle other perspectives. Wow. What a joy. Uh, so I pray God's good hand upon you. And, uh, you know, there was a, let me close this little story. It's about a, a Roman general named Scipio Aemilianus in the years 146 BC. And the Roman's army had just destroyed the city of Carthage in North Africa. And they obliterated it completely. Uh, and uh, the general did not like exult in the victory. He actually wept as the city burned. And he was asked, why are you weeping? And he said this, because I feel a terror and a dread that someone someday will give the same order to destroy my own native city of Rome. And that is actually what happened over 500 years later. And so it was Augustine who wrote City of God when Rome fell, basically saying, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. And let's always make a distinction between the, uh, Uh, the city of the world, city of man, and the city of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you because the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great day.